Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is John 4, verses 43 to 54. Again, that's John 4, verses 43 to 54. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. After the two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And he was now going down, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as... We study it as I preach your word, that your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would be those who who believe your word. Father, because it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is authoritative for all time. So Father, I pray that we would fix our minds on this word and that you would feed us by your Spirit. May all of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So Jesus now leaves Samaria and that city of Sychar, where we had uh, been camped out for a while. And uh, you remember that the city of Sychar had that two-day revival in it, and uh, many came to believe in Jesus because of the testimony of the woman, but then Jesus' own work in their midst. Now these first three verses are strange in our text, 43 to 45. Because Galilee is Jesus' hometown region. It's, Galilee is like the state that Jesus is from. 
So what's strange about this? The passage says that Jesus went to Galilee because you see the word for there as a conjunction. It's causal. Because he went to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country. Um, Yet, then what do we see? We see the Galileans believing in Jesus. Right? We see that the Galileans, when he comes there, received him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And so, I don't think we are being given a picture of Jesus going into Galilee because he expects not to be honored there. Um, I think the best explanation, and the one that, that, that Calvin and Ryle hold to, is that when Jesus says his own country... He's speaking of his actual hometown, Nazareth, right? He is speaking of his actual hometown, Nazareth. Every time the word country is used in the Gospels, and it's used six times, it is referring to the city of Nazareth. Uh, For example, Matthew 13, 54, and it's worth quoting this whole section from Matthew's Gospel to show the kind of reception that Jesus received in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. Right, so Matthew 13, 53 says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown, that's Nazareth. And, be, and, and the Greek here, though, is literally when he came to his own country. Okay? So he goes down to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man Get this wisdom and these miraculous powers. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do any miracles there because of their unbelief. Now that's Nazareth. That's Nazareth. That's where he refused to do miracles because they had shown him their unbelief. But that sticks, that sticks out to me, right? They're questioning this guy, and it says, and they took offense at Jesus. So all the times that the Gospels refer to his country, it means Nazareth. So back in John 4, when it speaks of Jesus saying that a prophet has no honor in his own country, it is a reference specifically to Nazareth. His hometown did not honor him, but many in the region of Galilee did, right? The town didn't, but many in the region did. So our passage is essentially saying that Jesus uh, went from the Samaritans to Galilee bypassing Nazareth because he was not honored there. He wouldn't go there. He skirted around it. He took the bypass around Atlanta, right? Because... Because of the unbelief there. In the Matthew 13 passage that I just read, we see that they took offense at him. They had grown up with that boy. That boy Jesus. Right? They saw him go to Little League 
and their sons played Little League with, his son, with him. And they had seen him do carpentry work with his father. They knew his family. They knew, you know, how his brothers resembled him. And his sisters and his father and his mother, they knew them. And they think it is ridiculous that that man from that family would have power from God. They think it's ridiculous. Instead of faith, they took offense at Jesus. Familiarity bred contempt. And their, their closeness to him made them reject the truth that he preached. That's our temptation too, brothers and sisters, to reject the truth that Jesus preaches. We are much more apt, listen to me, we're much more apt to accept truth, strangely enough, from someone we don't know than from someone we know. Isn't that true? We accept, we accept the testimony of Facebook headlines. Facebook headlines, repeat them as truth. Right, you got to hear, you know, do you, do you know what's going on in Washington? All you've read is a headline on Facebook. Right, you repeat that as truth, but as soon as some actual expert we know personally contradicts them, those facts, we get offended. No. I read Facebook. What, what do you know, sociologist? You know? What do you know, doctor? about communicable diseases. Now, it was hard for the people of Nazareth to see the snot-nosed little boy from Nazareth as a prophet sent from God. Right? Regardless of the miracles he did or the truth of his word, they just wouldn't accept him. It, it will be the same with you when you come to faith and you go back to witness to your family. And they just think of you as the kid they grew up with. The kid with the weird, just does weird stuff. You know, the kid who did the armpit farts. And you're back like pleading for their souls. You need to find Jesus. I found Jesus. They're thinking of this. That's true. <laughs> we don't value things with which we are familiar. Your family doesn't value you when you come to them with a new heart and with the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Right? You, you don't value your boss who has been saying the same things to you year after year. Many churches don't value the elders who have been laboring for their good, for the good of their souls for years. Right? A celebrity Christian publishes a book and suddenly the, sh the sheep feel it's their duty and calling to resist the ministry of their own elders and pastors. That is today's church. I play second fiddle to all the celebrity pastors out there who are constantly preaching to you. There has been much of that through this COVID controversy, hasn't there? Right? 
many of you take your marching orders from other pastors and elders. Not the ones that God has given you, specifically. This happens all the time. This is our temptation. This is, this is where we live. Now, Nazareth was like this, but not all of Galilee was like this. Uh, much of Galilee, as our text says in John, received him because they had seen the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem. The one we read about is, remember, what was, what, what was the miracle he had done in Jerusalem at this point in the Gospel of John? The one we read about is how he went to the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out the animals in the, uh, from the temple court. That's the miracle that they saw. Right? The other one, the, the miracle of the water and wine, that took place in Galilee and Cana, but they said it's the miracles that happened in Jerusalem. There were other miracles in Jerusalem too. And where does Jesus end up? He ends up in Cana again. He's back in Cana of Galilee. Um, remember when I preached on the passage of Cana? It, it, it's very likely that Cana is where his mother lived and his family. It's possible. We don't know for sure. But he's in Cana again where he had done the first miracle of turning water into wine and good wine at that. And what does, and who does he now interact with? He interacts with a royal official, the text says. A nobleman, a courtier, is who he speaks to next. That means this man was connected to Herod Antipas in some official capacity. He knows, he's connected to him, he's doing work for, the, for Herod. He was a courtier of some kind. He was a person with rank. He was a person who had standing. Right, it's not, and, and, and here's something not to pass over. It's not just the poor who have to endure afflictions. This man, this well-connected man, this man who was, was high up, had to endure the affliction of his son being near death. This man, hearing that Jesus had come to Galilee, travels, traveled from Capernaum, to see Jesus because his son was sick. And so a, another thing is you see the man's love for his son, right? He travels to find Jesus so that he, he wants Jesus to heal him. And he's willing to do that for his son. This man loved his son. Having heard of the miracles of, of Jesus, he, he found hope in Jesus being close. God sent affliction which drove this man to find Christ. He afflicted his son so that this man would go and find Christ. Let that be a lesson to us. The situation was desperate. As we read, his son, it says, was at the point of death. So this royal official humbles himself by traveling to Cana and then imploring Jesus to come down, the text says, and heal his son. Come down and heal his son. He wants Jesus to travel with him to Capernaum, some 18 miles to the east, situated on the Sea of Galilee, um, down from the hills, down to Capernaum. And 18 miles is a significant distance. We don't learn anything about the son's age 
in the passage because John uses the Greek word paidon as a term of endearment. It's, it's more like the, the lad, right? So he could be young, he could be older, but what is critical is he's very close to death. Without some sort of intervention, he's going to die and die soon. Remember, sons sometimes die before fathers, children before parents. But, so don't bank on a long life, young people. Don't bank on a long life. You should be ready to stand before God now. You may precede your parents to his throne. As we've seen throughout this gospel with, with, his, with his mother in, in Cana, with Nicodemus, and then with the woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus doesn't say what, what we expect him to say. He never responds to somebody in the way that we think would be in context and, uh, and understandable. We don't, he, doesn't think, uh, he doesn't say what we think he ought to say. It's the same here. The royal official comes to Jesus, asks him to come to Capernaum with him where he can heal his nearly dead son, and Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Come on, Jesus. It seems so harsh. I think the emphasis of this statement is on the word see. Unless you see, right? This man, unlike the centurion, thinks that Jesus must come down with him to Capernaum for the miracle to be effected, right? Remember the centurion? Remember how it differs from this story? Interestingly enough, that centurion was from Capernaum, right? We read about him in Luke 7, and Luke 7 goes this way, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he, the centurion, sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, that same imploring, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. So he's going to go. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, what does he do? He marveled at him. And turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. 
Don't even come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. The centurion believed that Jesus could heal from a distance. That is great faith, as Jesus said. The royal official, this nobleman back in John, it seems, given Jesus hard words after the request, clearly thinks that Jesus has to be physically present and the work of the miracle must be seen. Or he desires to see this miracle. He wants to see the spectacle of it. And Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes it. it the, the you is, is um, unless you people see signs, the you is plural. So he's speaking not just to this man, but to, to everybody who's there. And Jesus rebukes them for only believing in seeing signs and wonders only believing by seeing those things and wondering at them. On what basis were they to believe? Where should their belief have come from? Well, let me ask another question. Have you ever encountered people who believe on the basis of miracles they've supposedly seen, but they then have no knowledge of God's Word at all? Right? They, they have knowledge of miracles. They've seen extraordinary, unexplainable things happen. That becomes the basis of their faith, but they have never cracked open the Word of God. Right? This, this, is the, this is an element of the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it, word of faith, Benny Hinn movement today, right? All these sort of affecting of, of what they call miracles. People believe because they've witnessed miracles, but they do not believe because of the testimony of God's Word. Even though the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirits of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, the Word of God, boring. Give me miracles. I don't need that power. I need Benny Hinn to fake some miracles before me before I believe. But the Word of God, mm. boring. Powerless. Old. Dusty. So many people today, they want to see miracles or they will refuse to believe, right? They do not want to take up the Word and have it perfectly reveal the intentions of their hearts. They see no miracle in that. They just want to see something spectacular and unexplainable so that they can have a boast and a very fancy social media post. But to reveal my wicked heart and the remedy of faith in Jesus Christ, no thanks. I'll take the miracles. I'll take things on my terms, right? I'll take miracles that I can interpret to other people. Not the Word of God which interprets me. Perhaps that describes some of us. You have to see something with your eyes. You will not believe something unless you witness it with your eyes 
And that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean you're looking at creation's testimony of God's existence in a sunset. It means you have some, you have to see some dude heal a man's broken leg or some near death experience that was escaped or some celestial event that just can't be explained. But we are are saved by faith. Faith. Uh, And what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. And here's the truth of the matter. Those who crave miracles are often not converted to Christ. They are converted to the miracles. They become miracle junkies. Right? They crave the excitement, but not the truth. It has always been this way. It was this way with this nobleman, with this royal official. It was this way in in Geneva in the 16th century. Here's what Calvin writes on this passage. He says, The Jews, they were unreasonably and immoderately attached to signs and cared little about the grace of Christ or the promise of eternal life or the secret power of the Spirit, but on the contrary, rejected the gospel with haughty disdain because they had no relish for anything but miracles. I wish, and then he goes on, so he's, he's taking that, that um, example from the Jews and now he's going he's gonna to talk about his own people. I wish there were not many persons in the present day affected by the same disease. But nothing is more common than this saying, let them first perform miracles and then we will lend an ear to their doctrine. As if we ought to despise and disdain the truth of Christ unless it derives support from some other quarter. But though God were to overwhelm them by a huge mass of miracles, still they speak falsely when they say they would believe. Some outward astonishment would be produced, but they would not be a whit more attentive to doctrine, the Word of God. Dear brothers and sisters, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Anyone who believes on the basis of miracles alone, apart, uh, you know, away from or apart from the Word of God is likely just to be converted to miracles. They'll be more likely to put stock in conspiracy theories and unexplained phenomena than in God's Word. The miracle, though, is still the work of God in and through His Word. That's the true miracle. The miracle of God working in and through His Word. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Remember that story? That history? And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, Lazarus raised from the dead, Lazarus raised from the dead, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, what did he say? They've got something already. What do they have? 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, no, no, no. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Even if somebody rises from the dead, is there any greater miracle than someone rising from the dead? No, but, but, but Jesus says, look, Moses and the prophets, you know? Moses and the prophets. Good old Moses and the prophets. That's where the power is. The Word of God is primary. Upon it will faith come. It is believing the Word of God. It is believing the... It is believing the miracles written in it. It is by that that one is saved, not by witnessing and craving new miracles. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. I think all of that is wrapped up in Jesus' hard words to this man. He wants, even though he's worried about his son, he wants to see this miracle. And what is the royal official's response then? Sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't get it. He's ignorant. He's ignorant, but he's persistent. And, in though, and, and though Jesus rebukes him, he does not reject his request. Jesus doesn't reject his request but does it in an unspectacular way. He just brings it about by a distance. It just happens. There's no spectacle at all. He just, it happens. Nothing to see. He says to the official, go, your son lives. Go. And, and then, now look at your text. Look at the Bible. What does it now say about the man? It says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. The man believed the word that was spoken to him and started off. Yes, he believed that Jesus, what Jesus said. He believed the word of God. He believed. He did not insist on Jesus coming, but changed his course set out back to Capernaum with faith in what Jesus had spoken, what he had said. And Jesus is so kind to this man. He's misguided, he's living by sight, and he still heals this dying man's son. Right? That is love, that is kindness, that is the patience of God on display. Jesus is powerful. He merely decrees that the son be healed, and he is healed, right? He says, your son lives, and the son lives. He does not have to apply mud or medicine to this man. 
He heals him. That is the power of Christ. And the man's response is one of faith. He ceases his imploring of Jesus. He believes, he returns home, the son is healed, and the father is also healed. On his way home, some of the man's slaves met him and told him that his son lived. He asked the slaves when his son began recovering, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Just as the father suspected, that was the very hour in which he was talking with Jesus. And this man went on to do what? What did he do after that? He shared this story with his family, and his entire household comes to faith. Right? His, his affliction sent to him from God, his son is dying, an affliction sent, the affliction drives him to Jesus, Jesus rebukes him and saves his son, his life, brings the father to faith, and the father goes back and the whole household comes to faith through his testimony. Which is to say, when God works in you, do not keep it to yourself. Don't keep it to yourself when God opens your eyes to some truth in His Word. Don't keep it to yourself. Share that, that truth. Share it with somebody. Share that with your family. Uh, do not share it with someone that you work with. Do not be proud or remain aloof even with your families. Right? Tell them how God spoke to you in the Word. Tell them what prayers He has answered. Speak to them about your vital, real, living relationship with God Almighty. That's what you should do. You should do what this man did. Going back, checking Jesus' words, and then sharing with them the power of Jesus. You know, Jesus did this from a distance. Jesus did this without any struggle. Jesus didn't even have to come here. Do you realize that this is the prophet? Do you realize this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one, the one who can do anything? Let me close with Ryle's main point from his commentary on this text. It summarizes what I've been saying. Here's what Ryle says. He says, Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence. Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence. Now let me pause. I'll get back to Ryle in a second. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you believe that Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence, then you would be pleased to be in his word because it's there you meet with his presence. Right? That's, that's what that would mean. That would mean that this past week, if you were in the Word, not at all, you don't believe what I just said. Right? You're waiting for a sign from heaven. That's the sort of relationship you have with Jesus. He's written a book. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's here for us. In it, we meet Jesus. And if you don't go to the Word, then you think that Jesus' presence is is all that matters and his word is nothing. I, I'm, I'm telling you, Satan will try to get you to think that. 
The evil one will try to take the word away from you and then get you to think that it's presence. Meanwhile, he's taken the presence and the word away from you because it's in the word. Right? So, so your commitment to the word of God is your proof of whether you believe Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence. It gives enormous, Ryle goes on, he says, it gives enormous value to every promise of mercy, grace, and peace, which ever fell from Christ's lips. He that by faith has laid hold on some word of Christ has got his feet upon a rock. What Christ has said, he is able to do. And what he has undertaken, he will never fail to make good. The sinner who has really reposed his soul on the word of the Lord Jesus is safe to all eternity. He could not be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written in it. In the things of this world, we say that seeing is believing, but in the things of the gospel, believing is as good as seeing. Christ's word is as good as man's deed. He of whom Jesus says in the gospel, he lives, is alive forevermore, and shall never die. The word of the Lord. That is our miracle. That is how faith comes. That is your salvation. The word of the Lord. Believe what is written. Amen?